surroundings. I'm visiting friends and family, so I've had to get myself somewhere quiet. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you something, people. If you were around in the 80s and didn't know who my guest band was, you must have had no TV, no radio, no record stores, no clubs. I mean, you had to be standing on your own on a little island, but then you probably heard Bananarama. And they're back with a brand new album coming out called Masquerade. And they just played uh, at, at uh, Botanic Gardens, Royal Botanic Gardens. And my guest from Bananarama is Karen Woodward. How you doing, Karen? Hi, thanks for having me. So you got to tell me about the concert. All I know is I saw on Twitter and everybody's arms were waving and it was cool yeah. lighting. It must have been a blast. Tell me, because it's been a while, right? Um, well, we ha- the, the Kew Gardens ones was cancelled two years in a row because of COVID. So we had, uh, I mean, we're always busy doing festivals and shows in the summer, but the last two years, not so much, because I think it was all so up in the air even last year before we had lockdown and weren't allowed. So it was, I don't know if it was because it was two years in the making, but the crowd were like they'd just been let loose i mean there wasn't an arm not in the air it was thousands and thousands and we just had a ball we had the best time it's you know it's the what, what we love doing performing so yeah it was a fantastic vibe fantastic show got two this weekend <laughs> now now how do you because you've had so many hits and you have the new album masquerade which sounds great but when you put your set list together okay i'm sure i mean do you sit there and you want to put, I'm sure you want to incorporate new stuff and because you've had so many hits, it's great because you can go probably hit, hit, new song, hit, hit. But how do you how do you set everything up for when you get that set list ready for your shows? Um, well, we, we, we change it around occasionally and then we see how it works. We've just done a little tweak for next weekend's show. We've just moved Cruel Summer actually down a bit. But... Um, I mean, we've been to see quite a few live acts in the last few weeks, actually, because we happen to have had Sundays off. So we saw the Stones in Hyde Park. And then last night we saw Niall Rogers and Duran Duran in Hyde Park. And you kind of, they you sort of think, oh, you're doing what we're doing. So you don't want people to leave. So you save your best ones, your biggest ones for the last. The last so no one thinks, because you sort of think, oh, I probably won't stay to the end. But then you think, well, hang on a minute. They haven't done this and that. And that's the ones you want to see and sing along to. So... I mean, as much as we love incorporating some new tracks um, with a, a festival show, you know the ones that people want to sing to and wave their arms to. And, and it's just su- such a phenomenal feeling to get that reaction that you learn to sort of build it up and do it in the correct order. You start with a banger and you finish with a few bangers. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me about the new album, because before this, you had recorded in stereo in 2019, but before that, it had been 10 years. So, first of all, how, yeah. where did this album come from? Was it just because of the pandemic or what? Well, it, it's very different from the in stereo album was an album. Like you say, we hadn't um, put an album out in 10 years, but we had throughout the previous five years, probably, um, been recording for bits and pieces or just for the fun of it and just because we wanted to, with no real purpose to it. So we we realised we had so many songs, we put them on an album. It was the first time we self-released an album. 
which is the most incredible thing to do. I mean, we've always yearned for complete control and had quite a lot of control, even from the beginning, I think. But to actually get to a point where you think, right, I've been doing this 40 years, I really should have control over every aspect of it, including everyone who works on it. And we've got such a great team. So this album, I mean, in the first lot, we had two major lockdowns here. Um, the first one for three months, we just signed a book deal. So we had three months to sit around writing a book. And the, the second album, um, the second lockdown, we were allowed to have a bubble uh, for work. So we just started writing separately. And Sarah did a few tracks with her daughter, who's the most incredible songwriter. Um, and then I went up and bubbled and we suddenly, we, we started as usual with no real plans to do an album and ended up thinking, this is sounding really good, let's make an album, as opposed to an EP or a few tracks to celebrate our 40th. Um, and what a great way to celebrate by, you know, doing a, and an album that we're particularly proud of. I think the fact we did it in a short space of time makes it much more cohesive than the last one, and it hangs together, and it's got a style to it, um, which is a style that we love. It's, it's you know, electro, it's pop, it's dance, it's... It's everything we love, really. So, yeah, we are absolutely thrilled with it. Well, I noticed, you know, the song, and it's, and you're right, the sound, but it also has that little bit of, like, a mysticism. You know, that reminds me of, you know, just a feeling when you listen to it, it's like, it's relaxing, but then you can dance to it. And that's very important, because that was big about some of the 80s songs. You know, they had that, you know, if you're thinking, like, Kaja Gugu, Too Shy, it starts off sort of relaxing, then it kicks in. Your your album, I was listening to it, it it's it's relaxing, but it's got a groove. Now, now, how did you find that? I mean, you, as you said, you, it's been 40 years. Had you, has your writing style changed a lot or what has happened with you two as you've grown? I think having Sarah's daughter involved, um, earlier on, we, we'd, we'd, I'd already said to Sarah that there were a couple of tracks that Alice has written because she's an artist in her own right, Alice D. And, that I thought the songs were so great, I'd really like to cover them. And um, we we both loved Favourite and Brand New, both of which are Alice's songs that she's released herself. So there was a, a sort of starting point around that as well. And um, like I say, Sarah wrote a few with Alice, which I think sort of breathed a bit of new life and got us probably more excited than sitting down the two of us. And then once we did sit down the two of us, it just kind of flowed. And I think... Um, because we'd been, when we did the book, we, we were reflecting a lot on our life. And I think lockdown, you know, a lot of people had a really bad time. And it was a time where you thought about what was important to you. And I think, I mean, Sarah wrote uh, a lot of the lyrics on this album. And um, Masquerade was very much current and what was going on in the world. And... Being inclusive with people and being, I mean, you know, where it's probably taken took me thirty out of my forty years to even feel vaguely comfortable with who I was and confident. And I think it's really difficult these days for you know people who get bullied online, all stuff we didn't have. But you take things so much to heart when you're younger. And there's a, I think there's a sort of a. a of freedom that you can get with that sort of confidence. Sarah did a lot of reflecting. Obviously, we did the book, and um, she did Forever Young with Alice and, and reflecting on our lives together and all the stuff we've done together from childhood because we did meet when we were four years old. 
and it we've had the most incredible life and it's just basically this album is everything we've been through everything we think there's a lot of positivity in songs you know trying to find hope when you're in a bad situation um i think it's quite a thoughtful album in in lots of ways um but I think you get what you want from songs. I mean, you know, I was just saying to you, I've been to see some shows recently. And you take what you want from people's lyrics. And the beauty of music is it creates memories as you listen to it, where you were when you heard that song. I mean, I've got songs that make me laugh, make me cry. And, I, and, and <clears throat> when we meet people along the way at the shows or, you know, when we, when we go to events... The, the nicest thing you can hear is how much your music means to someone. And it means, it makes it important. It's not as trivial as I think you think, oh, it's just music, you know, it's just throwaway. It's really not. It's it's important to a lot of people's mental health. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, when I hear Cruel Summer, I automatically think of Karate Kid because, you know, I was 84. I was I was in college and it was a popular movie. And. And it took it takes me back, and that's you're right about the '80s. Even when I hear Venus, I think about the video, you know, and you, yeah. you, and the, and the clubs that would play it down the Jersey Shore, and you go out and dance, and uh, yeah, and it's important. Now, how wait? You guys met at four? Were you like friends right off, or did you end up like becoming friends later? We we sort of hung out. We we were very sporty, and we we run around in the playground at school, and but we had sort of other friends, and then. From sort of eleven, twelve, we completely gravitated towards each other. I think we kind of felt we had sympathetic feelings with each other. What we loved, whether it was the clothes we liked wearing, or the music we liked listening to, or just what we've always had. Really, is uh, from a very young age, is a real sense of adventure. I think, um, which we've continued to do. <laughs> now, how did Bananarama form? I mean, because it's funny, it's once again, it's, it was one of those, living in America in the 80s, when you would often see a group on MTV, and, and you really wouldn't know who they were, because we didn't, weren't connected to London, I mean, luckily I was near Philadelphia, so we had a good market, yeah. but how did yeah. you guys, how did you guys form? Um, well, Sarah and I had always sung in school musicals, in the choirs, we'd always absolutely love music, we used to record ourselves, um, singing along with, I don't know, Barbara Streisand. Evergreen was one of our first recordings. A brilliant song. Not sure we did it justice at that age. But um, we we were living in the hostel, in YWCA hostel in London. Sarah was at college doing fashion journalism and met, had met Siobhan there. But Sarah and I ended up, because we'd met Paul Cook on a night out and he used to come and call for us and we'd go clubbing and stuff, we were made homeless and and he suggested we live above their rehearsal room and that really kick-started it i mean we used to play around on the instruments and one of us would have a guitar and one bass and we did backing vocals with him and steve jones who had a, a group called the professionals after the pistols and um at his suggestion really he said why don't you give it a go and make a demo so he fixed us up with someone who was going to pay for a demo and produced it and the Terry Hall from Specials, Fun Boy 3 at the time, bought it and, and suddenly we were on top of the pops, which we watched our whole lives. And it was it was it was quite incredible, really. I mean, we, we weren't really expecting it, but I think, you know, we we certainly had that punk attitude, even though we were 
sort of post-punk at the time, we had that attitude, well, why not? Let's give it a go. I think you know, that, that whole thing of doing it yourself and just get, we enlarged our way on stage at various clubs with our cassette of a backing track and just sang over the top of it. And I don't know when we suddenly realised we had a career, but it was quite a while in, I think. Well, when did you start hitting the charts? Because you, I mean, it's funny, you're, you're in like the Guinness Book of World Records for like mm-hmm. songs of uh, a woman group. Yeah. I mean, when, when did you start hitting the charts? I mean, because, you know... Well, we made, yeah, we made a demo at the end of 1981. And I think in February 1982, we were top five and on top of the pops with the Funboy 3. So it was a proper whirlwind. And it was, I, I sort of gave up my job and Sarah had finished her course and she obviously met Siobhan. So we um, we then moved into a flat with Siobhan. So the three of us all lived together. And it was sort of mayhem, really. <laughs> it was, it, I, I mean, Sarah and I had never even been on a plane. We'd never flown um you know, we've been on a ferry to France or whatever, but we'd never even flown. And suddenly we're being flown to places and hotels. And uh, it was it was just something to... We had just embraced it and enjoyed it and then started... I mean, the first few songs were covers. And it started with sort of B-sides. We'd sort of tap a leg and sing along and um, started writing songs. And then f- sort of got signed to a record company for no advance whatsoever. <laughs> I, I always hear that. I always hear, I always hear, I always hear the uh, horror stories of the contracts in yeah. the 80s. People are like, oh, my God. So when, now, when did you first come to America? Because that must have been amazing because you hadn't been on a, you know, you're coming to America. And I know you played American Bandstand and Solid Gold, but when, when did they bring you to America? Well, our big thing was we wanted to come to New York. And I think our first trip to New York was to make the Cruel Summer video. So we had no idea it would be a hit in the States. And it was, you know, this is the budget. The record company gave us a budget. And we interviewed directors. And we said, we want to go to New York. What do you want to do? We want to go to New York. And, And that was it. So the director who came up with the goods for the budget that was the one that we picked purely because we wanted to experience New York. And I still love New York, if I'm being honest. It's great. I mean, we 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 had done promotional stuff in the States and not really made a break before that. So to actually have it almost, it almost happened, because it was in Karate Kid, I guess, it got brought to people's attention. And it happened while we weren't there. And then suddenly we turned up in the States and everyone was singing it at us, including like the likes of Mike Tyson, who was outside our hotel leaning on a limo and he started singing Cruel Summer. And you think, oh my God, people know us in America. And it was just the most exciting times. I mean, extraordinary times for us. Now, what was it like for you, the three of you actually, because MTV, everyone watched MTV. And all of a sudden you go from before when, you know, when, when I was younger, you know, you just heard people on the radio and you'd yeah. see occasionally the midnight special in America, like, and you guys had toxic yeah. pops, but all of a sudden MTV, everybody's watching it and you guys are very popular. So it was constantly played. How does your life change? Because you must've been automatically beginning recognized everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing being recognized because I don't know. You, I, I, we just felt like we were 
normal girls, I suppose. And when people start coming up to you, um, it, 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 I mean, we kind of embrace it, especially when we're working. You know, you expect it. And it, it, it's quite joyous meeting fans and meeting people. I mean, it's not so joyous when people are trying to these days sneak photos of you. <laughs> when you don't feel like you're looking your best. Right. Um, yeah, I'm it, the MTV thing was fabulous because it was it opened opened you up to a worldwide audience, really. Um for me <clears throat> and of course it was us and Culture Club and Wham and Duran and it I mean it was almost like British pop became this massive thing again, I think, which is probably the first time since the 60s that it had been. Um, I think for us particularly, the, the the slight downside was that we always wanted to tour and because that's what we wanted to do. And because of MTV and because of us being perceived as being these sort of photogenic girls, we were... The record company were very happy to ship us around the world to do TVs, to have to make videos, and not really concentrate on doing being a live act, which is what we always wanted to be. Um, and we didn't end up touring till right at the end of the eighties, after Siobhan sadly left. Um, was the first time we got to do a world tour and come out to the states and play live, um, which which is why we had a reunion with her in twenty seventeen. It very much was like unfinished business. So we did a, a reunion tour, sort of one tour with Siobhan, and we had an absolute blast, and she absolutely loved it as well, because she'd never performed all the songs she sang on. Did it, did it piss you off when, you couldn't, when they didn't want to let you tour? I mean, you know, it's like anything. That's such an important part of being a performer, yeah. that energy. I think so, but, I mean, bearing in mind, and I'd like to think it isn't as bad now, um, it, was a, it was quite a sort of sexist industry, and I think... The fact we were three girls and, you know, weren't sort of moaning and, you know, strumming guitars. I think the fact that we were in, in well, we weren't a very traditional group at all, <clears throat> excuse me, but um, the fact that we were three, three girls fronting a band, I think they felt that's all we needed to do. And maybe they just didn't have the trust in us to be a live act. I, I don't know, but it was it was very, very difficult for us. Um, we had rehearsed off our own backs a few times. Um, sadly, one of them, I got pregnant when we were doing it, so that wasn't necessarily the best idea because we're quite physical when we're on stage. <laughs> and, uh, and then we had the, the sort of Siobhan getting pregnant and then leaving. But, um, you know, it, it was always a burning ambition. I mean... Being on the road was extraordinary for us. What an experience. Now, what was it like recording Do They Know It's Christmas? You know, Tony Hadley said they, they shipped him and he said he was like up all night. And he says that the Randys called him and he said he showed up. What was it like for you guys? Because that that's one of those songs, once again, for me, I know it's yeah. Christmas when that song I hear on the radio. What, what was it like for when you guys did that? Because it's so much talent. We had been out clubbing. Um, we, we we didn't know, really. I mean, we shared a, a management office at that time um, with Bob Geldof. And he did his own girls, you know, do you want to come? I'm doing a charity record. You know, we'd all seen the footage. He said, I'm doing a charity record. Will you sing on it? And we said, absolutely, of course. But when we arrived and saw sort of Sting walking down the road from one end and Duran from the other, 
I think we were a bit overwhelmed and quite shocked um, because I don't think we realised the pull that he had and that, that everyone would do it. And it was sort of the first of its type and it was the most incredible thing to be a part of. Um, quite shocking that there weren't... I mean, it's it's basically us three and Jodie Watley surrounded by a sea of men, which, again, it's... It's a bit of a shocker, really, when you can see how male-dominated it is. But that was the whole business at the time, I think. But it it was it really brought the world's attention to 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 the cause that he wanted and and raised a silly amount of money. So, I mean, good old Bob, he is a force of nature. <laughs> he really is. Now, tell me about your shooting the videos. What did you like about it and what didn't you like about it? Some people hate it because you got to sit around all day. Some people love it because you do sit around all day. But what was your takeaway? Because you, you did great videos. You had a bunch of them. What, did you like them or no? Well, once we found our feet making videos and very much the ideas, as I think you can tell, came from us, we had an absolute ball. I mean, we were dressing up. We were, I mean, for me... I absolutely loathe photo shoots because they're very static and it's not really natural for me. But the video, you're just having fun performing a song. Yes, they're very long-winded and you do seem to spend a lot of time sitting around and the conditions aren't always great. But hey, you know, it gets it's it's all part of the job. I mean, there's bound to be parts of every job that you don't like and mine would be photo shoots. But I, I've always really enjoyed doing the video and the video for the single that we've just put out masquerade we had a screen we went to puglia in italy and filmed a a rather glamorous castle i mean what's not to like (laughs) even when you're hanging around you're in the most beautiful surroundings um so uh, yeah i can't really complain about making videos it's it's performing so I, i actually quite enjoy it now, where did the song Robert De Niro is Waiting come from? It's just, it's so random. It, it's just, it's a random thing because De Niro, we always think of De Niro as, you know, New York, but it's a great song. But where did that come from? Um, we're not really sure. I mean, originally we were sitting with our producers, Johnny and Swain at the time, and just Steve had come round to where we live to do a writing, little writing session. And the idea was that, we absolutely loved Grace Jones' Pull Up to the Bumper. Um, how we ended up with Robert De Niro's Waiting, which couldn't be as far removed if you tried, I don't know. We were, we were watching a lot of films, um, you know, Taxi Driver, The Godfather. We'd, we'd have the VHSs in um, on a regular basis, round the flat, you know, lots of friends and a few drinks. And it uh, it just came up as a really unusual, random title. And we were huge fans of Robert De Niro. So, uh, I mean, live-wise, it really is... I mean, I I think you said you saw the footage from Q. I mean, it's the one everyone wants to see. I mean, they get, I mean, proper jumping. It's got a huge energy, I think. Now, you went from a trio and then to a trio, and now you're a duo. What's that like in when you hit stage? Because you guys have you two have such a long history. But did mm. when you first started being a duo, did you did you feel a little off because it wasn't a trio? I mean, how do you acclimate to that? I mean, if, you know, Sarah and I have known each other, been friends for so long. It felt completely natural. Um, 
I think, you know, the when we brought Jackie in, it, it was sort of more of a sort of un, slightly under pressure that everyone would think of us as three people and we would never have auditioned or anything. We knew her from clubs. We knew she had a great voice and was a similar personality. So it worked for us. I think it was a struggle to always be the new girl from her point of view. Um, and it, it's, it, I think it, it was very much more natural with Siobhan because it all started together. Sarah and I have almost telepathic communication when we're working and when we're on stage and, and just in life. We, have, we run everything ourselves. We have quite sort of specific roles because we're different in certain ways. Um, but it, the, the really odd thing is that when we did the reunion thing with Siobhan, I realised how Sarah and I are completely natural together when we're performing because I was constantly looking at Siobhan to sort of make sure she didn't stick out or that I was doing the same of her, as her, whether she was supposed to be or do, doing it or not. I was like, I was mirroring Siobhan to make sure there wasn't an odd one out because, you know, Sarah and I have been a duo for 30 years and virtually all of our live work has been done as a duo. I mean, for the last, I mean, at least the last 10, 15 years, we've constantly toured, done shows all over the world, gone off to the Far East. You know, we've, we've been all over the place doing shows and it's something we've built up. And in that sort of 10 year period where you say, well, we didn't have anything out, we were constantly on the road and loving every minute of it. And, you know, working with a live band, you sort of change the way your songs sound and change the energy of it. And um, I mean... It, we're we're lucky girls that we can still do that. We're incredibly lucky that you know, forty years down the line, we're still best mates. And I mean, I've I've been with her for the past week. I've just left to come and visit my dog. If I'm being perfectly honest, <laughs> just to, to get away for a few days. But you know, it's. I mean, we are. We have a like a week off in August where Sarah's coming to visit me in Cornwall because I live by the sea. And then we have a week off in September where we're going on holiday together. So I think that sums us up. <laughs> it's like... Now, give me give me a high point and a low point of your guys' career. Because, you know, everything has ups and downs. But And, and you guys have been around for 40 years, so you've seen hills and valleys. But you're here and you're around. And we're all happy because of that. Because we everyone loves, everyone loves Bananarama. But give me a high point and a low point. I, I I think the high points for me was finally getting to tour after years of trying. Um, and it was just incredible. So that would have been 1989. The low point for me, for me personally, would have been a sort of period, probably not long after that, where um, I think I was just a bit burnt out and suffering from you know depression and god knows i had a a young child i was working i just i and everything all I, my relationship split up and everything just plummeted and i didn't really know what i wanted and what i was doing anymore and you know a lot of people go through that i didn't tell anyone i just kind of pushed eventually i had to tell someone but that nowadays people talk about things like that you sort of weren't allowed to at the time. I mean, even when I was pregnant, you know, there were people around me said, oh, it's a hugely inconvenient time. Why don't you think about not having this one and having one later? And it's insulting, but it piles the pressure on. 
that you're expected to be a certain person and behave in a certain way. And then I moved out of London and went to Cornwall and uh, took it easy. We we were still working, but took it easy for a bit. And I sort of got my life back on track and myself back on track. And that was sort of mid-90s. And since then, it's just been a bore because I think you make decisions where you do what's important to you. You have things that are important in your life and people that are important in your life. And there are things you can let go. And it's it's like the joy of releasing a, a record and, and sort of thinking, well, not releasing it so it goes to number one or so it gets in the charts. You're releasing it for you and for the people that love you and want to hear your music. You do, you do it for the right reasons. And don't feel any pressure at all. I feel no pressure at all. I get I I feel the pressure to be a performer and to put out good good music, but that's joyous to do anyway. So, I mean, I'm not wouldn't say there was no pressure in my life, but if you can get to a point where you're just comfortable that you're doing what you really want to do, then you're very lucky. And I feel that that's where I am, and I think that's where we are as a group. And we uh, just enjoy every moment while you can. Now, do you feel? And this is a weird question, but I think you should feel this way. Do you feel like a role model to, to young musicians? Because it's 40 years, you've had so many hits, and it's a hard it's a hard thing when someone asks you, do you feel like a role model? Because you're kind of, but do you feel like a role model? Because you've opened doors for people, and you guys have been very successful for all this time. I can say now I didn't, but now I do. And it's only really in the last few years. Like I say, with the book and reflecting on things... And the other incredible thing that I've encountered, particularly in the last few years, is, you know, going to do a, an interview with a newspaper who's, and there's a female editor who said, I genuinely don't think I'd be doing this if I hadn't looked up to you when I was younger and thought, well, they're doing stuff so I can do what I want. So, yes, I think, I, do, I think we could be pretty good role models. I mean, I, I sort of think... We weren't in a in a unattainable role models. I think these days, I think there's a lot of pressure through wh- whether it's retouch stuff through Instagram or you know what you have to wear or what you have to look like. We kind of ignored all that anyway, <laughs> and did exactly what we wanted. And I think we had we made a load of stuff. We had stupid hair or whatever, but it all came from us. I think there's a real pressure. I really worry for particularly young girls, young vulnerable girls and their mental health. I have friends with teenage daughters and I think it's a real struggle these days to keep young girls on the straight and narrow because the the people they look up to, it's not achievable for them, you know, and I think they suffer mentally because of it. I know with the friends I have who have daughters, they they feel it's a struggle. So if we were there inspiring people that, you can dress in a pair of dungarees and a check shirt and not have to, you know, be pin thin or, you know, be sexy or just be who you are. I mean, nowadays, if someone wants to tell me I'm sexy, that's bloody brilliant, you know, it's like, <laughs> because and when you get older, that's flattering. But the, the, the I think there's a huge pressure on particularly, well, I think boys as well, but if we were if we were any kind of role model and i think you you know you could do worse than look back at our career and what we've done and what we've achieved mostly under our own steam it has to be said 
then I think, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be someone's role model. Completely happy. Good. Well, I got to ask you two, two little more questions. The concert's coming up. Okay, you got to be excited because you're back on the road. Yeah. You said that the crowd goes crazy about Robert De Niro's waiting. What's what's your favorite? What's what's your personal favorite song to sing? And is there a reason why? Do you, do you know the one we? And I can honestly say for both of us, we never tire of "Cruel Summer," ever. It's love. It's great to sing. It's sort of a song that doesn't sound like anything else for me. I mean, it. You know, the minute you hear "Cruel Summer," you think. That's Cruel Summer. There's no thinking, oh, what's that intro or who's that? It's Bananarama. It's Cruel Summer. And I will never tire of doing... I I can't say I tire of doing it. I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily sit and listen to a lot of them now because I'm performing them all the time. I couldn't tire of something that the crowd enjoy because the buzz that you get from the crowd singing along and just letting the crowd sing so you don't have to is a joy as well. <laughs> now, do you plan to come to America? Um, yeah, I'd love to come back. I mean, we haven't been for a few years um, for obvious reasons. And I think um, because of the last couple of years, with everything a bit up in the air, and our campaign is very much uh, based over here in Europe at the moment, um, but we are, we have... I mean, because we were slightly delayed in putting our album out over here because there were issues because of COVID and Brexit with vinyl and stuff. We have we, we originally had plans for a year's worth of celebration for 40 years, and that's still happening. It just might have to drag over to next year as well. And is there any <laughs> so new- hopefully out next year, I'd love to come back. Is there any new music in your future besides this new album? Is there anything going in your mind going we're going to come back with another album in a year or two or i can't even think beyond what i'm doing next weekend at the moment to be honest (laughs) (laughs) um i i we don't we don't tend to make long-term plans we never have we're very much sort of spontaneous and you know what feels right at the time if if we might do one next year and we might wait another five years or we might not do you just can't tell to be honest well, really I want, yeah, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on today. Um, oh, thank you. It's you, been a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, the web uh, people follow Bananarama on Twitter. It's v- at Viva Bananarama. Go to their website. Uh, all the information is there. Buy the new album. It comes out the 22nd, I believe. You can find a new single, right. Masquerade. The video, watch the video, and just go listen to their music. And so, people, check out Bananarama. Check out my past shows. You can find over 900 at coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, (laughs) take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.